Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia, and I'm back. Thank you so much to the amazing Shannon Bond for hosting and producing a really wonderful episode last week. And to our listeners, if you haven't listened to Shannon's interview with Gimlet Media co-founder Matt Lieber, I highly recommend that you go back and check it out. It was really fascinating. But for now, let's get on with today's show. First up on today's show, Ben Bernanke has a new book out, his memoirs, an account of his time as Fed chair. We're going to talk about it with the FT's U.S. economics editor, Sam Fleming. And then the proliferation of streaming services and how they're changing the television landscape. The stuff that you and I watch on TV, we're now all watching on our laptops, and we're going to talk about what it means for the television industry and for the companies that create this stuff with Shannon Bond, the FT's media correspondent, and Matt Garahan, the FT's global media editor. And then finally, the Canadian elections, which have surprisingly global reverberations this year. We're going to talk about what lasting impact they're going to have on the U.S. and the rest of the world with the FT's Anna Nicolau and Matt Klein. Stick around, lots of fun stuff today. I'm here with U.S. economics editor Sam Fleming. Sam, welcome to New York. Great to be here. All right. We're going to start by talking about Ben Bernanke's memoirs, The Courage to Act. You reviewed it for the Financial Times last week. Your overall impressions? I enjoyed it. It's uh, very thorough, I think it's fair to say. It's a detailed account of uh, Ben Bernanke's time uh, at the helm of the Fed. I, uh, An attempt to prop up his legacy, to defend his legacy. I think that's part of what he was uh, trying to achieve. Yeah, I think that's very fair. Um, I think he's obviously got criticism from um, both sides of the political divide for doing not enough if you're from the left and if you're from the right for allegedly pursuing uh, policies which would debase the dollar and uh, cause a crash which uh, and hyperinflation, which of course never happened. And he wants to set the record straight. Also, in terms of the uh, Fed's interventions in the financial sector, um, trying to establish that this was to defend Main Street, as he says, not to defend Wall Street, even if the perception was that the Fed was just bailing out uh, bankers. Sure. I mean, it, it seems like the critique from the right tends to come from politicians rather than from economists. So the idea that it was debasing the dollar, well, as a matter of fact, we've had quite low inflation in the time since the crisis. Amongst economists, there seem to be different kinds of critiques, right? So in the immediate acute phase of the crisis, in other words, during the panic phase of the crisis, I think most people give him plaudits for the action he took then to make sure that the financial system didn't collapse and that we didn't sink into a depression level, a depression-like recessionary period, right? In the time since, there's a little bit more debate about exactly what he could have done. So It's true that we got out of the acute crisis phase, but in the time since, we've had very slow, steady, but very slow jobs growth. The jobs recovery has been kind of weak, slow wage growth, obviously on inflation. They've been missing the target in the time since. So it seems like amongst economists, the debate's quite different from 
the one that's taken place amongst politicians, right? Yeah, I think that's very true. Uh, and I think that what, he, what he's trying to do in the book is explain you know, the reasons that they took the various monetary policy decisions and why they were largely the right ones to take. I mean, you can argue that he should have pursued open-ended QE quantitative easing right from the beginning. They should have um, adopted forward guidance to, based on thresholds, again, right from the beginning, a, lo- a low unemployment threshold. They should for, effectively, forward guidance, for just to, can you define that for our listeners who don't have a... Effectively steering the market policy. that low, the rates would low lo- right. would make low as long as they needed uh, to keep them low in order to stimulate a genuine recovery. And if you'd really thrown the book at this uh, uh, at this crisis on, on the economic side as well as the financial side, you might have got a more robust uh, recovery. I think that part of the, what he's setting out really is that he did operate uh, under political constraints, as you said. He also operated under internal constraints. constraints. The, there was a broad church within the Federal Reserve, and not everyone was particularly happy with these extraordinary monetary policy uh, solutions they were coming up with. So in other words, other, other members, the voting members of the FOMC and the others on the Board of Governors disagreed with him sometimes about the appropriate monetary policy, and his job, as he saw it, was to wrangle a consensus, not always easily, though. Yeah, this is, uh, this, I suppose, what, something we're seeing at the moment with the Fed, which is that the Fed chair uh, it leads the Fed, obviously, but has to keep people on board. There were obvious examples of uh, voting members of the FOMC who are deeply uncomfortable with any kind of stimulus. And you'd think of someone like Richard uh, Fisher, uh, formerly of the Dallas Fed, as an example of someone who really didn't think uh, that they should be uh, cutting as aggressively as they did and as they did, and that they thought that there was a risk of inflation really when in retrospect there wasn 't right. there were I, mean, I think possibly less uh, publicly at the time concerns within the board of governors as well, and I think that 's one of the very interesting elements of this uh, of this book uh, within the in the main corridor within the uh, in the fed 's headquarters, there were individuals who were um, especially in the um, era of 2013, the uh, the taper when they started tapering their asset purchases, really and concerned. They were slowing down the pace at which they were buying assets from the market, buying you know treasuries and and I think some of the GSEs uh, securities from the market. The tapering refers to that period in 2013 when they were debating whether or not to slow that down. There was a big market freakout at the time. So what, what was, was going called, on? It was called the time? taper tantrum. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, within uh, the walls of the Fed, there were three governors who who, who he names as the three amigos, as he calls them: uh, Jay Powell, uh, Betsy Duke, and um, Jeremy Stein. Uh, now at Harvard, who all were saying that perhaps that tapering should happen a little sooner. They were uh, they worried that the Fed effectively was going to carrying on its stimulus a little bit too long. And so part of the case that Bernanke is building here is that, okay, he fouled up the exit from uh, QE in some ways because of this taper tantrum that we saw in the markets. But there were there was a lot of politics inside the Fed, which people maybe weren't aware of at the time. Yeah, and that's intriguing. I, I want to go back and kind of reframe all this in very simple terms. We have this period after the crisis phase has ended. The economy is still pretty weak. The Fed is trying to decide what the appropriate monetary policy is, dealing with the problem that interest rates are already at zero. They've lowered interest rates down to zero, but they want to find some other way of stimulating the economy. They effectively have two options, right? One is, as you just mentioned, quantitative easing, Right, which is when they buy treasuries out in the marketplace or other government-backed securities like those of the GSEs. All right, you try to lower long-term yields, and there are all kinds of effects on that, maybe on confidence or other channels through which it operates. The second, which you also mentioned earlier, was forward guidance, which is effectively the use of language to guide expectations of what the Fed would do in the future. The idea being that if people in the markets 
are confident that the Fed is going to keep policy very loose, even as the economy recovers, that they'll be more confident about spending their money on hiring people and buying stuff, right? So you have these two ideas. We probably should mention that this is an unprecedented time in monetary policy history. It's all very complicated. The problem being that because it's unprecedented, people are worried about perverse and maybe unintended consequences. And so we get to this period in 2013 where you've got these other members of the Fed who are saying, hang on a minute, Ben Bernanke, okay? I'm not sure what this is actually going to do. We might be sowing the seeds for greater problems later on. And then he has, as you just took us through this process, he has to like try to find a way of wrangling a consensus. But we should mention that that is a Bernanke-specific thing, right? That Greenspan in the past, his predecessor, Alan Greenspan, wasn't as worried about that. And we're not exactly sure how worried about it Janet Yellen is, right? So talk about that. Talk about this idea that there are different ways of managing consensus on the Fed. I agree. I think it's a fascinating issue to look at now and also compared with uh, Greenspan. I mean, when Greenspan took over in the Fed in the 1980s, he, it took him a while really to establish a reputation, which he ultimately took on as being somewhat dictatorial uh, within the Fed, really uh, t- effectively taking the lead and almost being seen as a one-man band. Uh, that's overstating it slightly. But the, the famous book, um, Maestro, I think uh, it encapsulates this idea that Greenspan was solely responsible for monetary policy in the US and therefore was allegedly the most powerful man in the world. Bernanke came in and clearly did not want to follow in Greenspan's footsteps. He saw it as unhealthy that so much was vested in one individual. And one obvious example of how he changed the tone was instead of as Greenspan used to within the FOMC, the um, Federal Open Market Committee debates, Greenspan used to open the debate on what the policy should be with his view, obviously setting the tone for what the policy would be uh, um, by the end of the meeting. Bernanke would allow others uh, to speak first and then um, um, chime in towards the end, uh, something that Janet Yellen has followed. So I think that's a more consensual approach. I think what also you get from the Bernanke book, however, is that as the crisis developed and things got worse, Bernanke really needed to actually step up and act. And so an awful lot of policymaking was driven by a small core of people uh, within the Fed, particularly uh, Bernanke, Don Cohn, the vice chair, and then uh, Tim Geithner at the New York Fed. Fast forward to the situation now, which is what you're asking about with Janet Yellen. Again, you see that Ideally, Janet Yellen would like to have a consensus on the, in the Fed policy making arena, would like to have as many people on board as possible. That is proving quite difficult because we're at a massive turning point in US monetary policy history right now. Do we keep low interest rates or do we start hiking them? It's quite a binary decision and it's hard in that context to have a consensual approach. You know, what's also intriguing about this too is that right now, the dissenting voices are coming from the other direction. So with Bernanke, there were people who were saying, wait a minute, policy's been loose for a very long time. Maybe we should tighten up a little bit, right, relative to where it was the time. Right now, the two recent dissenting voices, Daniel Torillo and Lyle Brannard, right, both on the board of governors, are saying, well, hang on a minute. We don't quite know how healthy the U.S. economy is. Maybe we should wait before we start raising rates. How do you think Janet Yellen's incorporating all this information, given that the the FOMC now seems to be quite split and dramatically so. I think yeah, I think it is dramatically split. I think if you think of uh, what you've got on the FOMC now, you've got, as you said, um, uh, Leo Brainard and um, also Daniel Torillo arguing really that they didn't don't want to see rates raised this year at all. Very much emphasizing the risk that if you go too soon, 
there isn't much scope to reverse the error. So why take the risk uh, effectively seems to be the gist of their argument at a time when inflation is really going nowhere. Stanley Fisher, who's the vice chair of the Fed, uh, Federal Board, uh, Reserve Board at the moment, is uh, seen as more hawkish. He's um, in the past expressed discomfort with the idea of rates being at zero at a time when he's ready to raise. I think he's ready to raise. Janet Yellen has been signaling that she's getting closer to to being ready to raise this year. So steering almost a middle way between them. But then on the other hand, you have a number of uh, Federal Reserve uh, presidents um, from the regional feds who've been arguing that they would like to see uh, interest rates raised as well. And there was a symbolic vote um, in a recent uh, meeting um, on the discount rate, which is, uh, without going into details, it's a way for, for um, bank uh, um, regional feds to signal whether they want to, what they want to do with the main policy rate. And eight, uh, eight of those uh, reserve banks argued in favor of an increase in that discount window rate, which is, uh, suggests there's quite some hawkishness going on in the background there. We should, uh, because I get pilloried when I have conversations about these technical issues, if I don't connect it to how it would apply to people out in the real world, right? When we have these conversations and I don't say how they matter to people, to just normal folks, right? So let's talk about that. Raising rates, uh, whether or not they go up, whether or not they, it's appropriate to raise them, how does this affect like Joe Blow, the average guy on the street? Well, I think right now raising rates would, if uh, the kind of increase they're talking about, a quarter point, uh, would have a very, very modest uh, impact on Joe Blow, frankly. Uh, it would probably would not lead to a sudden spike in, uh, in mortgage rates. Uh, I mean, I've spoken to people in the auto industry who don't think it would really have much impact on car loans. So we're, we're talking about almost an experimental increase in interest rates. The reason it could have an impact, however is that you really can't predict in advance how financial markets will respond to an increase in the policy rate and how individual uh, interest rates in the markets will will react. So, And this is something that the Fed worries about. Could the market, once this almost symbolic move is, is made, suddenly react and say, oh, this must be the beginning of a new era of tight monetary policy and that rates will continue to rise and therefore we should price that in in advance. And that's one of the big worries the Fed has. And that certainly would affect uh, ordinary people in America. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess the worry isn't what the immediate or direct impact would be of a rate hike, but rather what it would signal, what it would suggest about the Fed's preferences, about how the Fed intends to react in the future. And if everybody thinks, oh my God, they're going to slow down the economy already, then people stop buying, then companies stop investing, they stop hiring people. That would be the worry, especially if, as you said, financial markets have a total freakout. Yeah, right, and, and there, are, there is history to this. Certainly in 1994, that's what happened when the Fed moved rates. The markets didn't feel properly ready, and you saw a big, a big spike in uh, implied borrowing costs in the bond market, which had a, an, an impact on the U.S. economy uh, at the time. So, and, and actually, if you look at history, generally when the Fed has started raising rates, it's carried on raising rates. It doesn't normally do a quarter point or a half point and then stay pat for months and months and months afterwards. So the markets would say, well, if they feel confident enough to do this quarter point, they must be confident enough to do more, and we better price that in. Sure, and although it's not something I think I would worry about yet, I'm pretty sure you're not worried about it yet, we should also mention the other side of this, just in the sense, for the sense of fairness. Raising rates now or soon wouldn't be done just to prevent a later inflationary spike. There's also the view that it would be done to prevent 
the building of instability in the financial sector, right? This is something that a lot of people worried about. It's hard to define. It's hard to pin down. But we've seen in the past what happens if you let instability in the financial sector build up for too long. It means that when you do have a financial panic, it can be quite severe. Yeah, um, I think, I mean, I, I guess exhibit A for this particular argument would be the 2000s when we saw a big housing bubble grew up in the US. Uh, many people argue that the Fed could have done more to prevent that if it had had higher interest rates at the time. Now, someone like Ben Bernanke would strongly resist that argument. He would say that it was regulation which needed to do a lot more to prevent the, the disaster in the 2000s. Uh, and that there were big global forces which kept interest rates low, which uh, the Fed would have struggled to uh, resist with higher interest rates. So it would be a, a blunt instrument to try and prevent that. But it's certainly something people worry about now. They're always looking for the next source of uh, financial panic, financial boom, and then bust. And, um, you know, this is something that the Fed itself it continually, um, I wouldn't say pays lip service to. I think they mean it. They say we are aware that, that when you have very low interest rates for a long period of time, financial instability can brew up. Um, but right now, we don't think that case is compelling enough to, on its own, warrant an increase in interest rates. Bottom line, the courage tack. Thumbs up or thumbs down? I'll give it a thumbs up. Sam Fleming, U.S. Economics Editor. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot. And in the next segment, people are changing the way they watch video. They're not seeing it on TV anymore. What are they doing and what does it mean for the companies that produce this stuff? I'm joined now by Matt Garahan, Global Media Editor, and Shannon Bond, Media Correspondent. Matt? You first. Scoop of the week. What exactly is Disney life and why does it matter? So Disney is the world's biggest media company by market value. It, I've heard of it. it you, you may have be familiar with some <laughs> of its, its, uh, its titles. And they are launching in the UK in November uh, an, a digital service, a subscription service that bundles together uh, their classic animated movies, their live action movies, their books and their albums and all sorts of other things in one monthly price, which you'll be able to stream and watch on your TV if it's connected to the internet or your phone or your iPad or tablet or whatever. Essentially, all the Disney content you could want, not just television shows, not just movies, but books and other kinds of things yeah, as well. Yeah, kind of all the bells and whistles. Not, though, Star Wars movies or Marvel superhero movies, but everything else pretty much than that. Okay, including. only available in the UK. Yes, but they have plans to roll it out across Europe uh, with the goal, I think, of launching in France, Germany, Italy, Spain in the next 12 months or so. Why not do it in the U.S.? Good question, and one which we uh, put to them. And the issue, I think, from what, what I can gather, is that there are many more cable companies, satellite TV companies, distributors of Disney content, Disney product in the United States. There are obviously distributors in Europe too, but there are fewer of them. And they had to navigate around these agreements to launch this thing because if you have you know availability of easy availability online of disney content it might you know run into they'd run into problems with their other distributors okay now let's let's put this into the context of the broader theme that you and shannon wrote about in a separate story also this week yes right the idea that people are now starting to watch the stuff that they used to watch on television their shows their movies they're watching it not on television they're watching it online on their tablets on their computers that kind of thing. Shannon, what happened this summer that sort of brought this into stark relief for everybody? That now a lot of these companies that produce this stuff are realizing that they're going to have to make some pretty big adjustments. 
Well, we saw, as you mentioned, this summer, there was this kind of watershed moment for a lot of the big media companies, including Disney and a few others who uh, reported their quarterly earnings in August and were just really slammed by the market um, because they basically warned that they weren't going to see the kind of growth they had been accustomed to. Um, Disney particularly warned on ESPN, which they own, the sports channel, um, and just saying, you know, people are, have more options. There's more places to watch all kinds of content, both ours and others. Um, and it's going to be more difficult for us to kind of command the same audiences that we used to when everyone sat down in front of the TV at night to watch. Um, so that caused a big market fall for a lot of the media companies and kind of a moment of, a moment of reckoning for them to say, we actually, you know, streaming isn't some sort of side thing that we can kind of ignore. This is actually possibly like integral to the future of our business. And that, that was, I would say that would even be a bit of an understatement, right? This wasn't just a big market fall. This was something, this was something akin to like a calamitous drop, like a, a day of reckoning. It had its own it? name. They called it media meltdown. The right? media meltdown. Yeah. $37 billion wiped off the market cap of top media stocks in a day, basically on the back of this warning from Disney that the growth had slowed at ESPN, the kind of powerhouse right. cable network. So there's a, there's a lot of intricate issues here, but I guess the first thing that comes to mind is why now? I mean, we've heard about cord cutters, about people who have ditched their TV sets just to watch online for a while. Was this sort of a belated recognition by the market of something that had already been happening? It's been happening for sure. I mean, you, you've been sort of seeing a slow trickle. Um, and don't forget, I mean, a company like Netflix has been around for a long time now, uh, that which you know is getting a lot of people to subscribe, and they have something like forty million subscribers in the U.S. Um, who are you know watching TV and movies. What's changed in the past year has been a the big players, primarily Netflix, um, Amazon with their Prime Instant Video service, and to a lesser degree Hulu. Um, are making original content. So they're not just buying content from the TV studios, they're making their own. Um, so they're essentially now competing directly in that business. Uh, and a bunch of these media companies have started to see the writing on the, on the wall and are testing the limits of those contracts that Matt mentioned with their distributors. So last fall, you saw HBO, the premium cable channel, and CBS, the broadcaster, both launch apps that allow people to watch whatever they want to watch, anywhere they want, whenever they want, on their phones. Um, and it's really sort of that started to take off. There's a lot of other companies that are now testing the waters. I think the other issue, going back to the summer, is that because it was Disney that warned, right? And Disney up to this point had been Teflon, right? Nothing could harm it. And ESPN in particular, because it's live sport. People tune in for live sport. All, you know, they don't, they don't, that's the one thing they don't, they don't cut, the, the core they don't cut, they stay with their live sport. And for Disney to say, oh, we're a bit worried here that, you know, our rate of growth at ESPN is slowing, that suggested something was was pretty amiss, and that's what sent everything into a tailspin. It's just kind of a rare instance of, like, a big global behemoth essentially being proactive, in other words, recognizing what was happening ahead of time and saying, we don't want to be caught off guard, we don't want to be reactive here, we need to start changing things now. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, a lot of this is they just they're looking at the straight economics. I mean, they've made a lot of money. The traditional TV networks have made a lot of money for a long time now from what are called retransmission fees. So the cable and satellite providers pay them money to distribute their channels to their customers, you know, and they get a pretty good slice per customer. Um, but 
you, that's kind of been predicated on this model of a big bundle of channels. You know, you pay whatever, $100 a month, say, in New York, you know, for hundreds of channels, most of which you probably don't watch. They're not all worth the- Through a cable subscription. Through, through a cable. cable you know, company, I'm, right? I'm paying, you pay Comcast or Time Warner or whoever it is, Cablevision. Um, and not all of those channels are being watched, but kind of the, you know, the less popular channels are being subsidized by the more popular channels. And so the content owners have been doing really well. Now, you know, with increasing pressure from consumers saying, like, I don't want to pay for this. I'm not watching all of these things. Even the cable companies are now offering what are called skinny bundles, so smaller bundles of channels for cheaper prices. Um, you know, and they're beginning to push back against some of these companies that have less popular channels, Viacom being an example, where they're saying, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily need to carry everything that you're offering because people aren't watching it. It's, you know, and, and so then that's really disrupting to use an overused word, but it is disrupting like the the model on which the companies have been pricing this content for a long time. But it's, it is an overused word, but it is a good word to use in this case because going bring bring it again back to Disney with this this app that they're launching. Uh, Bob Iger, the Disney CEO, has sort of been out in front on a lot of these issues. Bob Iger, who's on the board of Apple, by the way, Apple. Uh, Tim Cook uh, said this week, "Why do we need TV? You know, TV isn't working. Um, TV is sort of." You know, the, the whole idea of sitting down to watch television is outdated, outmoded. When you can watch watch TV in any way that you want, Bob Iger shares those beliefs and said, t- told us, um, you know, he'd rather disrupt than be disrupted, which is why they're going direct, why they're going over the top with, yeah. with an app instead of relying on, on, on channels. Now, I like this quote because it was actually more aggressive than the way you just portrayed it. Yeah. It was, why does a television channel even exist? Yeah. Apps are the future. Yeah. The Tim Cook line. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And he and, and Bob Iger are kind of in lockstep on this. You know, I mean, it did, Apple and Disney have, have over the last decade or so, have been pretty in, in tune with the way media is changing and shifting. And I think more evidence of that here. Sure. And, and it seems like this also represents a shift in how consumers, people who watch this stuff, emphasize their own preferences because actually there were some economic benefits to the bundling approach right you know for a consumer you get all this extra variety there still are i mean frankly if i'm going to pay for a netflix subscription and a hbo subscription and amazon subscription and maybe i want cbs or i want to try the new comedy service from nbc and i'm paying for broadband it's actually i'm probably not starting to add up yeah but i think i think what's appealing to customers is is this idea that they they have the control mm. that that if I'm going to be pay that much anyway, I want it to be I want to watch it on any device that I want. I mm. want to watch it on demand. I want to have access to every season of you know a show that I love, as opposed to sort of the more limited options they've gotten in cable. Yeah, because they can tailor it. Yeah. They can make it their own. Yeah, so a la carte, is, a la carte rather than the right. set menu, right? You so can, I you guess yeah, and I guess the way I'm thinking of it is that that is psychologically appealing. Even if, because it's harder to recognize those economic benefits of bundling, right? You can say, well, I get these, I get to choose exactly what I want. Not realizing that actually there might be other stuff out there that you'd love to have. You just didn't know that you'd love it because you're not going to get exposed to it. Right. Do you guys still have uh, your own cable subscriptions, by the way? Have you cut the cord yet? I cut the cord probably earlier than most, back uh, in 2009. I thought about it this summer. Well, our, our contract came up and thought about it and we did the numbers on the things that we wanted to keep, wanted to watch, and decided to keep it. We got a bit, a bit of a better deal, but we decided to keep it by keeping it. Yeah, because okay. as Shannon said, you know, you add in all the things that you, you know, all the channels that you watch, all the the, the apps that you need to buy, right? And the, the the price goes up. And there's tension, right, between 
some of these companies and Netflix and these other providers now because essentially they have given away the content that they now want to offer themselves. Yeah, the, the, the big media companies are, re- are having another look at their relationships with Netflix. So five years ago, they were giving everything to Netflix, getting very paid handsomely for it. And as, as a result, Netflix has become this gigantic business. It's almost, you know, almost worth as much as 21st century Fox, right? It's a 50, $60 billion company. Um, and the companies that make the programming that Netflix has used are now saying, hang on a second, we've got to think about this. We can exploit this ourselves. We can sell it to the highest bidder elsewhere. We can put it in our own app as Disney is doing here in Europe. Um, you know, we can, we can monetize it in a different way without feeding a company which is going to eat our lunch somewhere down the line. Is there something almost sad about the fact that all of these different providers are effectively siloing themselves off from each other rather than all being in one place? Like, are we going to lose part of the television watching experience in that you used to be able to turn on your TV channel surf for a little while, serendipitously (laughs) find something? I cut the cord earlier this year and I don't regret it at all. But it's interesting to me that now... You have to you ha- you have to know what you want right. before you when you go to look it. for it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no. I think you. I mean, we are the behavior has changed. You don't have that kind of serendipity, and that's actually something that that people like Netflix and Hulu, which in some ways in this new world of apps for every channel, are a little bit of a throwback to a bundle, right? Like Netflix has kids programming and horror movies and documentaries, you know, and you know a lot of popular TV shows. Um, but it's, it's all in a bundle and they want to show you things that you might not think of yourself. So they're investing a lot of money like in recommend in their technology behind recommending Hulu is doing the same thing because they have to kind of they're, – they're trying in a way to recreate that serendipity of channel surfing in a non-channel surfing environment. Sure. Last question because you guys compare this to, disrupt, to the disruption that's gone on in other parts of the media landscape. Mm. Are these companies going to be able to make the economics work for them? I think they will. I think not all of them, though. Well, the, yeah, the, the ones that the big ones. Yeah, I mean, if there's an audience and it's willing to pay, you know, you're substituting the great deal that the well, the media companies are substituting the the, the bountiful money they were making in the bundle. I mean, it's a hundred twenty billion dollar year business, right? About sixty billion in in ads, sixty billion in carriage fees, and one of the people we spoke to said that's the golden goose which is worth protecting, right? And they are, you know, possibly substituting digital pennies for dollars, but they can't afford not to go where the consumers are. And some of them will fail, but the ones with the most compelling channels and the most compelling content will will stick around. And maybe you just end up having fewer channels because you yeah. don't have this sort of, you know, the implicit subsidization of channels that maybe fewer people watch. On the other hand, a small a small program that's less popular, a channel that's less popular, if you're selling it direct to consumer, you can actually find an audience. So there's a counter-argument there. So I don't know. I could, I could argue it either way. Shannon Vaughn, media correspondent, Matt Garahan, global media editor. Thanks for being on Alpha Chat. Thank you. Thanks, Cardiff. And on the next segment, in Canada, say goodbye to Stephen Harper and the Conservative Party after a decade in power. Say hello to Justin Trudeau and the Liberals. I'm joined here by Matt C. Klein and Anna Nicolau, our Northern Territories correspondents, if you will. Anna, you lived in Canada for like a decade. Are you stunned by what happened? I am stunned. What what (laughs) did happen exactly? Because this was a blowout. The Liberals won in a blowout. Yeah, I think it was a surprise to a lot of people. Um, 
it was quite a long campaign historically for Canadians. It was 11 weeks. And even a, a month ago, it wasn't really predicted for the Liberals to win the most seats in Parliament, let alone win enough to hold a majority government. So that was certainly a surprise. I mean, throughout the campaign, it had been kind of a tight three-way race up until the last two weeks or so. And in the final few days, there was really a surge towards the Liberals and Justin Trudeau. What do you think, what do you think accounted for the big surge in support for the Liberals towards the end? Because I think a lot of people were expecting that they would have to form some kind of a coalition with the third party, the New Democrats. And it turns out that actually the Liberals are in charge all by themselves now. Yeah, I think there were a few different factors. I think the Liberal Party ran probably the best campaign of the three parties. Justin Trudeau, a lot of people had sort of written him off over the summer as, you know, not being... Pretty not, boy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kind too of being, young. Being a pretty boy, too young, just not ready, as Stephen Harper said over and over and over. Um, but he performed a lot better than, than had been expected in the debates. He was kind of more passionate than the other candidates. And... There were, I mean, there were other factors. As we talked about last time, the left side of Canada was split between two parties. And as the NDP dropped a bit in the polls, that worked in his favor. I think his economic policy also gave him a boost in the polls. Yeah, then, talk about that for a minute. What, yeah. What's the difference in, uh, in the economic policies yeah, of that the was three the, candidates? That was the big part where he kind of stepped away from the pack. So you had Tom Mulcair, who is the leader of the NDP, which is the... Most, most left-wing party of the top three contenders. And then you had Stephen Harper, who was the conservative leader, as we talked about. And so both of them were calling for balanced budgets and this kind of fiscal responsibility and austerity measures. And Justin Trudeau pulled out this economic plan calling for essentially fiscal stimulus, calling for running deficits of $25 billion in the next three years to invest in infrastructure and building ro- roads and tunnels, um, just kind of drawing the line of, you know, we need to take out a loan, basically, to reinvigorate our economy. Right, which is and, slagging. Yeah, which, right. which, which has been slowing because of all the, the oil problems. So I think that was something that was a bit of a risky move, but it paid off for him because Canadians saw, you know, the economy's not doing well. Maybe we should just change something. Yeah, and I, I love this idea um, that Trudeau's essentially said, well, hang on a minute, all right? There are some lessons that we can learn from what's happened in Europe and the U.S. And that he essentially broke ranks with the other two by saying, what's the point of a balanced budget right now? All right. Interest rates are at zero. OK. There's probably a lot of space in which you know Canada can borrow. The sovereign can borrow. So why not invest the money? And it's kind of interesting because we're going to get a very real experiment in what happens when you do that rather than worrying about a balanced budget. Uh, let me turn to Matt. And by the way, are you not impressed that Matt, a Chicagoan born and raised, has this like quirky interest in the Canadian Matt economy? Yeah, <laughs> somebody has to. Right? I'm impressed, right? Like on, on Jobs Day every month, he just blows off the U.S. numbers and goes straight to Canada. It's awesome. <laughs> Matt, let's talk about the Canadian economy for a minute. It's in a technical recession right now. What's going on over there? Right. So the past two quarters, GDP, real GDP, has shrunk slightly. It's still bigger than it was a year ago. So whether you know it's not a severe recession yet. But uh, we've definitely been seeing some cutbacks in spending, particularly in business investment spending associated with oil, which is a big deal in Canada because as of 2014, which is the latest year we have full data for it, about a third of all CapEx comes from the oil sector. Big net exporter of oil That's Canada. That's correct. Um, and a big, just a big producer of oil in general. It's it's relatively small in terms of employment, but a lot bigger than than in the U.S., for example, or in, in most other rich countries. 
And so as oil prices have fallen a lot, even though the Canadian dollar has fallen somewhat to help offset it, the, the income available for producers and the attractiveness of a lot of production has gone down. So you've been seeing big cutbacks in spending there. Um, let's, let's explain this for a minute there. Sure. Okay, so the oil price falls. That means that the value of something that Canada produces and sells overseas also falls. That hurts the economy. Okay. In the meantime, the loonie, the Canadian dollar, as the Canadian dollar is called, has depreciated quite a bit. You would think that that would help because it would make Canadian products cheaper. It would be able to export more. Right. Okay. But that, you're saying, has not been enough to offset the damage from lower oil right. prices. Basically, the Canadian dollar has not fallen nearly as much as the oil price. That's okay. the short version. I mean, it's not like the ruble or the Nigerian Naira, right. things like that. So the Canadian economy has been slowing there. We've also been seeing this. It hasn't yet shown up in, say, like job losses, but you have seen uh, something roughly akin to that, which is that prior to the decline in oil, uh, Alberta, which is the major oil producer within Canada, it's about 80% of all the oil in Canada comes from that province. And within that province, CapEx is overwhelming. It's like two-thirds of all business CapEx goes towards oil. Um, They had been disproportionately adding jobs relative to the rest of Canada. They're roughly about 10-11% of the population in Canada. Uh, Over the past few years, they had been adding about a third of all the jobs. So that's clearly punching above their weight. Since then, if you just look, say, the past <clears throat> two years, uh, past year, it, they've, it's shrunk significantly closer to like 15%. So it's still better than their population share would suggest, but uh, you've been seeing that. And if you also look at the growth rates in employment from Alberta versus the rest of Canada, you can see a real convergence towards a common rate where Alberta had been adding jobs much faster. Yeah, and let's just clarify for a minute. Just because Canada is not actively losing jobs the pace at which jobs grow, and that's what you'd expect. You'd expect jobs to grow by a certain amount. That has slowed down. That's correct. Uh, and in fact, if we look at just the share of the population that has a job, which is, I think, a reasonably good measure of you know, the state of the labor market, it's been flat basically since 2012. So there was a, there was a bit of a drop-off, understandably, during the, the crisis and recession. There was a recovery, and then it's basically been flat. So it's not actually as bad. It's not like in the U.S. where it's far below where it was. If you look at, say, like 2005, 2006, Canada's employment rate is basically the same now as it was then. But there hasn't really been any improvement since then, and wage growth has been relatively slow. So... Um, productivity growth is also very slow, so that arguably fits in with that. So it's not you, – you can you can see why um, with the decline in oil and the decline in investment, people in Canada would be worried that if things hadn't been getting better when things were doing well, that they could potentially get a lot worse. Yeah, and there's one other thing to talk about here too, okay? The housing market. Canada has one of the best documented housing bubbles if it is a bubble uh, in the world, all right? And for years and years, people are predicting that the housing bubble is going to burst there. Why has it not <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's striking that the IMF has been pretty vocal in saying, yeah, we think the housing in Canada is overall. We're not sure how much, but, you know, probably 20% at least, uh, which is kind of striking. And they didn't say that kind of thing as much. They weren't as vocal about that before with other places. In terms of, you know, why it hasn't burst, it's tough to say. I mean, the, the Canadian financial system is quite a bit different than the U.S. one. They didn't right. have the kinds of subprime situation that we did with extremely uh, high loan-to-value ratios, low documentation, uh, they didn't securitize it to the same extent. A lot of this stuff is held by a handful of banks that have relatively stable profit margins because they're an oligopoly and they can get away with just extracting it's profits. It's not this massively entrenched part of the financial system. Right. The way it was here. Right. Or the, I mean, housing is. It's just that it's it's administered by banks that have, rel- at least at the moment, pretty good stable profit Okay, streams, so it might so. not be as big a threat, but still would... Presumably, cause I mean, a fairly big it, downturn if it, it were to. It burst. is striking because I mean, construction first of all has been at, is responsible for a ton of the job gains. In terms, it's the fastest growing employment sector they've been having for quite a while. 
other sectors are big too, things like educa- uh, healthcare and, and so forth. But construction is very big. Uh, house price increases have been enormous. If you look before 2008, they pretty much tracked the U.S. on the way up during the bubble. U.S. house prices subsequently went down. Using U.S. housing debt went down with that as people defaulted. Canada was the opposite. Kept going up. Right, is kept, it, kept is it possible upwards. that it's not a bubble? I mean, bubble, you know, has this little, very loaded word. Uh, you can conceivably argue that in a world where mortgage rates are, say, half what they were 10 years ago, give or take, that the discount rate at which you would uh, evaluate the you know, a, a piece of property ought to be a lot lower. And so you could argue that if rents are sort of growing along with GDP, then house prices ought to be a lot higher now than they were before. Sure. But let me, let me, let me rephrase this. Is it possible that there are sound fundamental reasons for Canadian house prices to be as high as they are now. So for instance, we know that there's a lot of foreign buying or buying by immigrants right. in Canada, and there's been quite a big influx of those uh, in the last decade or so. Is it possible that it's a simple case of demand outpacing supply for the time being? There definitely is a lot of demand. Uh, as you mentioned, There's Canada has relatively high immigration compared to, say, for example, the U.S., and in particular, it's a, it's been a very attractive destination for Chinese wealthy Chinese who want to get their money out of the country and also, it's relatively easy to get Canadian residency if you spend enough on housing. So uh, it's, at least for a few markets, places like Vancouver in particular, but also some of the other cities like Toronto, um, that could explain some of it. It's not really the situation the way it is in, say, Australia and New Zealand where there is, or, or certain U.S. cities where there are constraints on building. There's been an enormous amount of construction of condos. Okay. Um, but there is, there's definitely real demand. Okay. Turning back to the elections, Anna. This election was, I think, more closely watched by people abroad than previous Canadian elections. Uh, First of all, why do you think that is? And what do you think the impact is going to be on, for instance, uh, the relationship with the U.S. or other parts of the world and Canada because of the outcome? Just kind of looking at American media media coverage of it, it seems a good amount of it is Justin Trudeau. People kind of saw this like charming, good-looking guy, and people have been making comparisons to Obama. I've seen the Obama a, of Canada. Yeah, I've seen a lot of weird shirtless photos of him all over <laughs> Gawker. Um, I, so I think I think his personality kind of drew people to it as a storyline. I think the fact that it was such a surprise. Um, well, maybe not even it was a surprise, but also it was a very big change. I mean, the Conservatives had ruled for a decade, and people weren't really expecting this kind of outcome. I mean, in terms of the effect on the international community, I think a lot of people blame Stephen Harper for kind of tarnishing Canada's image with the world, particularly on a lot of the environmental stuff. He pulled Canada out of the Kyoto Protocol. He didn't sign a bunch of treaties with other countries on on the environment. So I think people... It's an oil-related thing too, by the way. Yeah. I mean, he kind of had these ambitions of Canada's going to be this energy superpower. um, And that was his big priority throughout his... Um, time serving as prime minister. So I think that also with Justin Trudeau, I think people are hoping that, and he's made it a big point in his campaign that he's going to, you know, restore ties with the U.S. and make Canada look like a nice country again. Sure. I I mean, I I think uh, there's also at least another part of his platform that's sort of firmly progressive, right? Yeah. Um, By the the political definition of the word progressive. Mm -hmm. In other words, um, the conservatives were not the type to say, raise taxes on people who make a lot of money. Trudeau, I think, has been open to the possibility of cutting middle-class taxes but raising taxes on people who make more than 200000 I think, was the number, uh, Canadian dollars. 
Yeah, that all all those things are part of his campaign talking yeah, cutting about t- talking about cutting taxes for the middle class, raising taxes on peop- on Canadians who make more than $200,000 a year. So all of that kind of tied in with his image of trying to help, you know, the the, the average Canadian, folk, the regular right. Canadian guy. So I guess maybe in in some sense also more in tune with like the global zeitgeist and the newfound emphasis on inequality that's yeah. been such a big prominent part of the economic conversation in the last few years. Yeah, definitely. I mean, inequality has definitely hit Canada as well as obviously in the U.S. with, with the um, economic recovery. So I think that was a part of it. Okay. Well, you guys are my Northern Territories correspondents. Every time anything <laughs> having to do with Canada comes up, you're coming back. Okay. No choice in the matter. Anna Nicolau. Matt Klein, thanks for being on Alpha Chat. Thanks, Cardiff. Thanks. And in the follow-up segment today, Amelia Mahasik and Shannon Bond has stayed here because, guys, I want Shannon to be able to face her critic, unlike what you guys did to me last (laughs) week when you talked behind my back by necessity. You were here in spirit. Yes, indeed. And you're surrounded by three women today, Cardiff. Yes, that's true. That's so we true. could do a really good he said, she said, <laughs> <laughs> and she said, and she and said. And nobody would believe me. Uh, that's um, not true. Amelia, what, what stood out about last week's episode guest hosted by the mighty Shannon Bond? The mighty Shannon Bond was fabulous. It was your segment that I've got an issue with. <laughs> <laughs> Unsurprisingly. <laughs> the segment with Greg Ip, which was yes. cut short necessarily, and you may tell me that I'm wrong if listeners were to luxuriate in the full hour or what's the long form? The long form uh, on Alpha Chatterbox lasted about 50 minutes with Okay, Greg. so which was about his book. Yes. Uh, which essentially, as far as I can tell, advocates that we recessions are a good thing. No, that it's okay for some either instability in the financial system to play out. In other words, that it's okay for the stock market, for instance, to go down sometimes. It's okay for some other asset markets to go through periods of volatility because it makes sure that people aren't complacent. And something similar applies to very shallow recessions, right? In other words, it's not a good thing that like a ton a ton of people lose their jobs, that kind of thing. But some volatility in the economy is acceptable so that you avoid a much larger, as we described it, conflagration down the road. That similar to forest fires, it's okay to let the occasional forest fire burn because it clears out some of the brush so that later you don't get one that's impossible to pull out. So he was making that analogy, but I think his point was that it's actually very hard to tell in the moment whether or not it's the kind of recession or it's the kind of financial market volatility that you should allow to take hold versus the one that you should try to put out immediately. His point was that even after a couple of years of researching it, in real time, it's very hard to know what the right framework is for thinking about that. So my issue would be that conflagration is fine as long as it's not your house that's burning down. So the human element, (laughs) which I have, think I've brought up before about economics discussions, seem to just be missing. And so perhaps it's there in the 50 minute alpha chat. Yes, it is. But in the excerpt, I felt like we were talking about the abstract of recessions and right. people losing their jobs. And uh, in fact, I think Martin Wolf has said it's not a good thing to experiment with having a full on recession or a depression or right. not, you know, talking right. about these things in abstract terms that don't relate to human lives. Right. Okay. 
Fair enough. Good criticism. All right. So <laughs> choose our excerpts, choose our clips better. Well, so I'd be, I will be interested to listen to the whole 50 minutes and see his redress to the human cost. Sure. You of, should. It was okay. a great, it was a great chat. Highly recommend it. And otherwise, Shannon was fantastic. Yes, he was. <laughs> yeah, uh, Matt, the discussion with Matt Lieber, I thought, was a real highlight of last week's episode. Absolutely so. Founder of Gimlet Media. I'd like to hear more founders, actually, if we can find them. People if, if they're willing to talk about. I mean, I think one of the things that, that's been so interesting about Gimlet is because their, you know, their first show was about themselves, they sort of, I mean, especially for a startup, they have a really high level of transparency, and you just don't get to see that. So... I mean, if we can get people who will actually sort of, you know, open the kimono a little bit, right? It's way more interesting. Great guest, Shannon, awesome job. Uh, I think both of you will be happy to know that this week, in response to last week's follow-up segment, all right, we're discussing rate rising. Okay, we're discussing how that affects the little guy. Okay, <laughs> and little woman uh, in the context of Ben Bernanke's memoirs and his attempts to defend the legacy. Those of you who are listening have already heard that, but hopefully that will stave off future critiques from one Amelia Mahasuk. We we'll need keep to trying. We need to give you. <laughs> we need to give you like a nickname. She's an right? Yeah, it was like something that because you do this after the fact. Maybe you're like the Grim Reaper Aww. or something like that. I don't Aww. know. <laughs> like, I don't know. Passing judgment. Yeah, uh, that's does too. The Grim yeah. Reaper does, no, the Grim yeah. Reaper doesn't. He just he just kills you or something. He just takes you to your death. Yeah, he, something else. We need something better. What's a good nickname for Amelia? We're going to work on it. Okay. He okay. Is yeah. Solomon. He is. <laughs> Solomon. Has to be a woman. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amelia Mahasek, Shannon Vaughn, always a pleasure, guys. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks. And that's all the time we have for this week. Thanks for listening. As always, you can go to ft.com forward slash alpha chat to see show notes and other links relevant to today's episode. Or you can give us a call at 917 551 one, two, to give us feedback and ask questions. Give us recommendations for future episodes. You can also send us an email at alphachat at ft.com or even record a voice memo on your phone and send that to us via email. Finally, you can tweet me directly at Cardiff Garcia. Amy Keene is not yet 35 and she's Canadian, which means she's not allowed to run for president in this country, but I would absolutely vote for her. In the meantime, I'm just thrilled that she produces and edits this podcast. Thanks again to our listeners, and we'll see you next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. Alpha Chat.